This is History 605, where we discuss everything from Crazy Horse to cyberspace. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the South Dakota State Historical Society. Welcome to the show. Well, welcome to History 605. Today we have Kurt Kemper. He's a professor of history at, and the director of the General Beadle Honors Program at Dakota State University. There he teaches courses on American history and culture and also classes for the cyber intelligence uh, program there. His first book was College Football and American Culture in the Cold War Era. He also has an admirable fascination for the Army-Navy football game, uh, which has long advocated for that day to be a national holiday. I've never known anybody outside of a military service to have such a, such a uh, fascination in the Army football game. So for that reason, Kurt's a great American. Kurt joins us here at the South Dakota Public Broadcast Kirby Studio today. Welcome to the show, Kurt. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. You're welcome. Today we're going to talk about your, uh, your latest book called Before March Madness. Uh, Kurt, I was super impressed with the book, and that's saying something since you went to USD, and I did not. Um, in fact, uh, I, I found out later that the book grew out of uh, research you were doing about USD's basketball team and the national championship in the 1950s that you did at uh, the South Dakota State Historical Society conference several years ago. So I wonder if you can go into how that research started. Well, I was fascinated about the, the team in 1958 at USD that won the national championship. The, basically, the meat of that team was two brothers, black kids from Brooklyn, New York. Wow. And so the question has always been, how did two black kids from Brooklyn end up in Vermilion? Um, and they weren't marginal. The older brother, Cliff Daniels, was the Metro Player of the Year in, in the mid-1950s when he graduated from high school in New York. So the thing that, that struck me in, in 1951, as fans of college basketball probably will know, there was a massive gambling scandal, mostly around Madison Square Garden. It was a point-shaving scandal. They got players to throw some points. It never involved throwing games. It was just making sure the gamblers were able to cover the point spread. And it involved multiple campuses. Um, it was a you know front page of the New York Times. It ensnared, among other things, the National Player of the Year. It was a huge controversy. And most of the players who were um, basically you know found to have been involved were white. But those who fell into the criminal justice system, the majority of those who were given um, you know prison time were black. Mm. And so one of the things that came out of this was an assertion by one of the uh, chroniclers of this scandal, who is a, who's not a professional academic, but who's written a lot of books and is a big, big follower of, of hoops in New York City. He asserted that this really calmed college coaches' willingness to recruit black kids for a, a generation in college sports because it was presumed they were going to be more susceptible to, you know, these unethical sort of under, you know, underworld kind of characters. So my immediate question is, is this basically, you know, how somebody of the Daniels brothers' talent ended up in Vermilion? Um, I never did find any linkage of that whatsoever, um, but I, I struggled um, right after I managed to make contact with the head basketball coach at USD, um, he passed away, oh. uh, and the Daniels brothers were not interested in being interviewed at length, so I, I really sort of ran into a dead end in that. But while I was trying to negotiate you know, these live interviews with people, I started looking into the documentary side of things, and, and I kept finding other things that pushed the book in a totally different direction. Okay. Um, and so ultimately, I realized, A, I was never going to be able to write 
um, about the the USD you know side of it. And, and a, a side component of that was also um, the other dead end that I ran into is that SDSU does not maintain or did not back then university archives. And so part of the story about the Daniels brothers has to get into the rivalry between USD and SDSU because SDSU tried to have them ruled ineligible. Um, and so when I went to Briggs Library up in Brookings, there is virtually no you know, records of the university predating the university archives in the 1970s, which is problematic in general, but in particular because SDSU personnel were far more involved in NCAA activities. Yeah. Um, Reuben Frost, literally the buildings named after him up in Brookings, was a, a commit, an active committee member. Um, you know, there were several individuals who, outside of Brookings, had a substantial amount of influence and presumably had quite a bit of correspondence that might have shed some context about what was going on at the time. And, and I, you know, so at every level, I just kept running into dead ends. Uh -huh. um, so the, the project sort of left turned and, and went in the direction that it ended up being. Being the... Before March Madness. Yeah, so which was a much more national examination of the changes in college basketball. Right. So that that uh, is very much what the book is all about, is, is how did college basketball, which was really run in, say, the 1920s by the Ivy Leagues. I mean, they had um, the premier players, and they would win what, was amount, what would amount to a national championship. Um, but... Uh, that all changes, and your book kind of walks through the changes of that um, to what the NCAA that we recognize today. I'm wondering, uh, what's, what's going on after World War II that changes sports um, so much? that? Uh, that well, uh, the short answer is money. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, in, in many regards, if we, if we change the dollar figures and change some of the proper nouns, there's much about college sports now that we would recognize, you know, 60, 70 years ago. Okay. Um, however, and this is one of the, the focuses that I'm looking at in the book, is there were, while we, we can recognize where it ended up, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, it wasn't certain that it was going to go in the direction that it went in, which is to say, essentially, you know, pseudo-professional minor league, you know, kind of sports in every extent, other than the fact that we're not paying the players. Um, but there were still a lot of vigorous voices in the discussion at the time um, that really firmly believed that not only did we not have to go in that direction, that we had already perhaps made a turn and were heading in a, in a different direction. Um, and, and one of the things about the NCAA is that it's really, a, you know, as a, as a, it's a membership organization. Mm -hmm. um, and as a result, while there are full-time staffers, all of the real meaty decisions in the NCAA, particularly about, you know, policy directions and, and you know, whether we're going to offer national championships and eligibility rules and all of that, that's done by its member, you know, delegates. Um, and I can tell you as somebody who's been involved in academic committee work for a long time, there's nothing really appealing about it. <laughs> um, and so, you know, you get these individuals in the NCAA who can get onto these committees and then they can really sort of shape the direction um, of the association. And that was overwhelmingly done by schools that sought a commercialized model. They wanted mm -hmm. to use sports as a way to pay for their athletic programs and also to reach out off campus to people who, you know, in the 20s and 30s, I mean, even up to the 40s, 
it's still not common in terms of the majority of Americans having a college diploma. So when we think about, you know, the, the phrase that we often hear is the front porch of the university. In other words, the access point for many Americans, you know, they may not have ever been on a college campus, but they follow college football or eventually college basketball, and that's what they know about a university experience. And so a lot of these schools who wanted to use sports for that function, they're the ones who really are driving policy because they're on these committees um, that okay. run the NCAA. So if if they're driving that that policy function or that desire to use sports to to um, make more money for the university, who are the people who are opposite that? Well, and this is another thing I try to examine. We tend to see um, the the direction of college sports as people who wanted to make money from it. In other words, <laughs> those are supposedly the bad guys. Mm -hmm. And then there's the pure academics who are allegedly the good guys. Um, and neither of those sort of polar opposites are very accurate. Yeah. But the biggest problem with that is it it un, it, ex, it ignores a whole bunch of other constituencies. Right. Um, so besides the fact that you have at one side mostly the big state schools, you know, Michigan, Ohio State, Southern schools, and on the West Coast, it's you know, it's UCLA, it's Berkeley. So you've got those big schools, and they're all committed already to to commercialize what we call big time athletics. Mm -hmm. Then usually the, the, the way we describe the voice of, of sports for sports sake is the private liberal arts colleges. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't really describe a full picture in American you know, higher education in the middle of the 20th century. Another thing we have to consider is what we call regional or state campuses. So, for example, I teach at Dakota State University. That's a classic example of a regional school. Mm -hmm. It's not the, you know, the biggest in its state system. It draws a little bit you know, outside of the state of South Dakota, but not a whole lot past the four or five state region. All right? Nobody is going to confuse DSU you know, with, with Minnesota in its sports program, for mm -hmm. example. Um, and these schools are really beginning to grow, particularly after World War II. Um, you know, the, the shift in the economy that's created by the, the Depression and the war, um, as well as a growing accessibility to it financially, some of which is coming from federal funding and federal programs like the GI Bill. All of this is witnessing a huge growth. And so some of that is taken up by the big state schools and particularly, you know, the, the Big Ten schools just grow exponentially. I mean, the, the best yeah. example is like Ohio State, which, I mean, they have three different zip codes, I think, in that school now. Yeah. Um, but also in other schools like DSU, um, you know, smaller schools in the region, they begin to grow as well. And so they look at the state of college sports and they say, well, wait a minute, we don't really have the academic pedigree of somebody like Oberlin or Swarthmore, but we're sure as heck not Nebraska or Iowa. So they're a different voice in this because they're not really looking for the same kinds of things for their athletic programs. Um, another voice that is largely ignored at this point is historically black colleges mm -hmm. um, who, for the most part, don't belong to any association. And their primary concern is simply using athletics as a way to sort of claw their way into an egalitarian American mainstream and, and using sports as a way to demonstrate that. So when we think about the debate in college sports, if all we're thinking about is who's cheating in big time football, you know, it's kind of easy to ignore it as this, this you know, bipolar or dichotomous, you know, mm -hmm. kind of debate. But one of the things I try to do in the book is, is point out that there are lots of different constituencies in college sports and they all kind of want different things. So the problem then is, okay, whose interests are going to get served and how? Right. So one of the, I, I think, 
I think it's chapter five where you go through uh, historically black colleges and their um, entry into. Well, you ha- it, it, that's a chapter largely on on race in sports, and you see certain coaches uh, knowing that their best team is not being selected because of a perfunctory thing that the hotels in town won't take black players. And so they have to figure out how they're going to bring their one or two African-American kids in. Um, and you see them really struggling with that. And I wonder if you can go through just some of the work-a-day business of racism in 1950s, 1940s America and how they began to, to push on that and which coaches maybe pushed harder than others, which were really indignant and which didn't care. Yeah, and, and it's a w- good way to think about how pernici- pernicious racist, you know, sort yeah. of activities could be. Um, so you you could say, hey, well, I, I go to a school, there's no explicit, you know, admissions rejection against blacks. Or even if you had a coach who would say, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to welcome black kids on the on the team. You, as you point out, there's a large logistical issue that really has to be dealt with here. And particularly for those who were less than really genuine in their willingness to, you know, welcome or recruit black students and black players, that was often used as a good sort of de facto, well, it's not that I'm racist, but, you know, how am I ever going to take them on a road trip when we play in a conference that, you know, is in Maryland and West Virginia and some of these border states? And so um, it it was really pernicious. Um, and it required substantial um, negotiation. Um, you know, a lot of it was sort of having your head on a swivel. And if coaches were involved, you know, w- okay, which which towns do we know we're going to have problems in? Um, and by the way, those towns might be in places you wouldn't expect. Um, when I was still thinking I was going to do a, a book that was based mostly on South Dakota and dealing with the Daniels brothers. Mm-hmm. Sioux Falls in the 50s didn't have a very good reputation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Nickel Plate Diner on Phillips Avenue, for example, uh, turned away the Harlem Globetrotters at one point. Um, so, uh, you know, when, when, when USD had to play Augie, um, they bust and, and didn't eat in Sioux Falls. Um, so, mm-hmm. so those kinds of things were not limited to just the ex-Confederate South. Um, but yeah, it was about knowing about hotels um, and, and one of the things that I found, um, you know, as, as a historian, you learn very early on that you're not writing always about great things and great people who were larger than life. And inevitably, they're humans, and they're, they're flawed, and they're gracious, and, and they're all the things that humanity is. Um, and so you want to try to think about them as, as real, you know, textured people. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a historian, I have changed the way I look at events as my own life has changed. And probably the, no bigger event was important to me than having children. Um, and so as I thought about what these kids dealt with, I put it within the context of my own kids. Um, and, and one of the people I write about is a kid who went to Indiana State University named Clarence Walker. He's actually from Chicago. Um, and he was the first black player at Indiana State. Um, and as basketball season falls over the holidays, um, he was on campus over Thanksgiving, and most campuses, like you know, as Indiana State did, closed their dining hall. And so John Wooden was actually the coach at Indiana State, and he'd made arrangements with a, a diner uh, in, in downtown Terre Haute for the, the kids to take their meals. And so Clarence Walker shows up on Thanksgiving Day. You know, he's away from home for the first time. It's a holiday. He's black in an overwhite, you know, overwhelmingly white community. You know, there's all these things where there's discomfort. And he goes in to get his meal, 
And the owner of the diner basically implicitly says, you want to eat in the kitchen? In other words, I don't really want you out in the front of the dining hall. And I, as a parent, knowing my own kids are sometimes at the mercy of others in their travels in college and far away from home, you know, that that's where you really realize that segregation was something and discrimination that just kind of ate away, not just at the individuals, but it, it, as I said, it was a stain on the soul of America. It, mm-hmm. it does not reveal the better angels of our nature. Yeah. Um, and, and it was difficult for sports to have to, to negotiate that because it was a lot of times things that were outside of their control. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how did other players on, uh, you said Walker was his name. How, mm-hmm. how, how did his teammates handle things like that? Um, well, when they, um, you know, when it was really overt and it was something that they were all around, mm-hmm. then they generally rallied around him. Uh, there were other times though, where he was sort of left to fend for himself. Um, one of the things that, you know, that the school, there were only so many ways the school could manage this. And so sometimes he just got left behind and that was not uncommon. Sometimes actually that was often negotiated in the game contracts. These were called gentlemen's agreements. And so they would only agree to play schools if they were integrated, if the integrated school would promise not to either bring or play their black players. Um, And so sometimes, you know, they sort of got cast off. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And other times there were... Um, awkward moments. Um, Walker tells about a, a teammate that he doesn't name um, that, you know, started to sing a racist ditty, um, mm-hmm. a little bit of a jingle um, in, in the locker room one time. And, and as he gets to the offending word, just as about, as about to come out of his mouth, the guy realizes what he's about to say and looks awkwardly at Clarence. And, um, and you know, so to me, one of those, you know, one of the ways in which you can think about this is, Again, getting back to the perniciousness of, of racism, um, you know, I think most of us would presume we, you know, we would reject those sentiments, but it does, you know, less now than it used to be, but it does kind of pervade elements of, of culture and you can, you know, kind of fairly easily pick up on it if you don't have a, a real sharp meter about how mm-hmm. it might so easily offend. Um, yeah. And so it, it wasn't an easy negotiation for those kids. Yeah. Let's go back to the to the 1920s and so forth. One of the leading lights of college basketball, at least if you follow Kansas, is Fog Allen. And um, talk talk to us about uh, in the 1920s or so when there uh, there's different leagues going on and different tournaments. Uh, it's kind of um, it's, well, it's more of a wild west. You can pick and choose the tournaments you want to play in, and then of course um, how you do in those tournaments is often uh, predicated by who else might be there and so forth. And so there's a lot of um, bargaining about who's going who's gonna to play at these tournaments. Um, and the, the, is it the double-dribble rule? Uh, not so much the double-dribble, but it was just a dribble rule about how many times you could dribble the ball before you were required to pass it. Okay. Okay. And that this was still not set in college uh, tradition, Sports that particular rule and so forth, and Fog Allen has a meltdown <laughs> about <laughs> about this uh, rule being changed uh, without going through what he thought was the proper procedure. So I wonder if you can just explain a little bit about that, and then talk about what the fight was really about. Yeah. So so the the subtitle of the book actually is the 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 wars for the struggle of the soul of college basketball, yeah. and so there there is a lot of conflict, and the earliest one is between the NCAA and and the collegians. And what was then, well, the AAU, it's still called the AAU, um, which 
their primary responsibility was essentially the stamp of approval on amateur status because they largely controlled the Olympic team. So okay. basketball, as it's practiced um, from the 1890s through the 1920s, is, as you describe it, a Wild West. So you have the AAU clubs, and these Which are AAU stands uh, for? amateur athletic union. Okay. So you have these clubs, the YMCA, which actually founded basketball and for a while was playing what we would call big time basketball. In fact, for a while, the Buffalo Germans are like eight time national champions or something. Um, I mean, they didn't they didn't lose a game for several years. Um, So there's these groups. And in 1905, the AAU says that any college teams that want to play AAU teams have to be sanctioned by the AAU. In other words, what they're trying to do is bring the college teams under the AAU banner. Um, I, I find it more than highly coincidental that's also the same year that the NCAA was founded. And so there is this <laughs> decades-long struggle between the NCAA and the AAU over control of amateur sports. And this is the opening salvo, really. Okay. So the collegians try to reject this, and they create their own leagues then. But that means you've got multiple, you know, organizations all sponsoring, you know, highly competitive. We can't really call it big-time college basketball yet, but highly competitive basketball. Um, And in an effort to try to keep this from being completely just, you know, out of hand, they agree to a, a rules committee that involves, you know, a whole bunch of stakeholders. But the biggest are the AAU, the Y, the NCAA. You have, because um, the Y's reach went into Canada, you have Canadian groups that are involved in this. Then you have an officials organization. You have the high school groups. So they're, they're all involved in this joint rules committee. But it's really a, a bipolar struggle between the AAU and the NCAA, and all the rest of these are sort of arrayed around the superpowers as satellites. Okay. So in 1927, there is a meeting in New York uh, to discuss the rules, and one of the things they want to do is change the the dribble rule. Um, and, and they want to limit the amount of dribbling um, and increase passing. So some people saw this just as a way to sort of refine the game, and make it, you know, more, um, you know, uh, emblematic of teamwork by emphasizing passing. Another thing was the practical issue that the the basketball at the time was actually something that was still laced up. So if you caught the laces on the bounce, it would give you a funky sideways bounce sometimes. And then the other thing was, is that I can't remember what the statistic is, but it's made more than half of all fouls that were committed were off of the dribble. And so that was causing a lot of, of, of slowing down of the game. So the answer was, hey, let's just basically darn near outlaw dribbling and intensify passing. This happened to occur at a, uh, at a time, though, when many college coaches, most notably Fog Allen, was not at the meeting. Uh-huh. So <laughs> when this comes out, you get Fog Allen and, and many of the collegians, and it was mostly collegians, uh, you know, college coaches, who weren't present at the meeting. So they're very unhappy about it. But as you rightly noted, there's really some underlying issue here, which is the AAU was based, um, one, in urban areas, and and not so much the association itself, but its teams. Um, The way AAU basketball generally operated was that you had people who would sponsor teams, um, and then basketball quickly moved away from the elite Eastern clubs into commercialized ventures. And so there were companies that would sponsor teams. Normally, these were, you know, basically employees, allegedly. 
but in reality, these were often ringers who had, jo- you know, employee status, but whose sole job was playing basketball, or they were highly subsidized. Probably the most famous example is Babe Diedrichson Zaharias, who's maybe one of the greatest female athletes of all time. And she worked for a life insurance company called Employers Casualty as a stenographer. The problem was is she got paid three times as much as every other female stenographer, and she played four different sports for them. She was almost never in the office doing any actual stenography. <laughs> she ended up winning three gold medals at the 1932 Olympics for the United States. Oh, wow. Um, anyway, so so the, the, the college people disdain the AAU because it's pseudo-professionalism. Uh-huh. The other thing is it's mostly urban, and it is involved with a lot of urban organizations that in the 1920s and 1930s, many rural Americans are deeply, deeply suspicious of urbanization. You know, if we think about uh, sort of the myths of the 20s, you know, the roaring 20s, the violation of the Volstead Act and the mm-hmm. illegal alcohol, and, and what's, what we, what's really underneath all those myths is big cities as, lo, you know, locus of sin, basically. Yep. Um, this is where we have the relative morals of, you know, um, diverse, uh, you know, integrated uh, communities, uh, you know, religious pluralism. We have the entertainment industry and their shady morals and, mm-hmm. you know, that seem to play fast and loose with, you know, institutions like marriage and the family and, and, and you know, the advertising industry that's always seeming to push the bounds of good taste. And, Many Americans who are still living in communities of less than 15, you know, by the 1920s, most Americans are still living in smaller communities. Um, They're overwhelmingly Protestant. uh, They're native born. And so what they see is cities as catch all description of everything that's wrong with America, basically. Yeah. Um, And so the AAU is seen as an expression of this, not just because they're in cities, but they're also allied with groups, um, you know, like uh, religious uh, uh, aid associations, uh, things like the American Jewish Congress, uh, you know, in places like Chicago, the Catholic schools have their own leagues. And so they're all affiliated in some way with the AAU. Okay, okay. So what we begin to see is underneath this war between the collegians and their allies with the AAU is also a, a push between rural and urban, between Protestant and Catholic and Jewish. Um, and this all comes to a head when the, the faction that is identified with the AAU and the YMCA gets actually a college coach from NYU named Nat Holman to be their interpreter of the rules. In other words, he's sort of the the guy that's going to set policy for how they're going to, you know, the, for how they're going to move forward from a competitive basis. Okay. And Holman is fraught with complications as far as the collegians are concerned. So yes, he comes from the college ranks, but one, he had played an early form of professional basketball, even while he was still in college and while he was an active college coach uh, with the original New York Celtics. Mm-hmm. Um, so they really don't like him for that. Um, they also are very, very deeply suspicious of the fact that he's Jewish. Mm. Um, so there's a, a and and it very seldom does this really get very explicit. There's a handful of you know, of, of of documents that I found. It's pretty obvious, but a lot of it is just below the surface. But but Holman now becomes you know viewed as this sort of traitor. You know, literally, there's a one reference where they call him Judas. Wow. Um, so the the drool the 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 dribble rule fight is really just the, you know, the provocation, the stalking horse uh-huh. for all-out war now between the collegians and the AAU and their factions. <laughs> so all these organizations, though, are running basketball. When does, when does the NCAA 
and the NAI, which we've not mentioned yet, when do these organizations kind of strike out on their own and become exclusively university or college? Well, based? once the the fight over the dribble rule uh, mm-hmm. emerges, then the, the NCAA and the college teams are playing only themselves. They okay. don't even try to play, um, you know, exhibition games against anybody outside of their ranks. And they're also generally creating, you know, their own rules committees. Um and, and the tournaments don't come around, though, until the latter 30s. Yeah. Um, and the, 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 the issue over tournaments is less the struggle between the NCAA and the AAU. It's really a struggle within the NCAA over who's going to control college basketball. Mm-hmm. And for them, actually, the, the specter, if you will, the ghost that haunts them is actually college football bowl games these off-campus things that were not controlled by the collegians, and what that really means is they didn't get to keep all the money, Uh but by outside commercial ventures. And so in 1937, the Basketball Writers Association in New York creates their own tournament, which is what the NIT becomes. Um, And that's designed essentially to bring a whole bunch of really good teams into New York and and drive the hospitality and restaurant and hotel industry in New York and give the writers something to write about. Um, And very quickly, it becomes the preeminent college tournament because it's, you know, it's welcoming many of the the biggest names in college basketball. Mm -hmm. And the NCAA is super anxious about, oh, my gosh, this is basically about to be like the Rose Bowl, you know, highly thought of. And in fact, many describe it as the Rose Bowl of college basketball. That, okay. That's how obvious many people saw this as. Yeah. And uh, they don't want that to happen. Right, because they want to be able to control, more than anything, the profits off of it. Sure. Um, and then the next, but, but, but the only people who got invited were who the writers wanted to invite because they wanted people who were good to write about because writers are always looking for content. And mm-hmm. they wanted people who were going to bring a lot of fans because it was going to drive the hotel and restaurant industry in New York at the end of the Depression. Yeah. So smaller schools were wholly excluded from this. And they'd also been excluded from the Olympic qualifying tournament. Um, or Well, not so much excluded, but um, it, it became very difficult for them to get involved. And when they did, they often got put into disadvantageous brackets. Um, so they create their own tournament the following year in 1938, and that's in Kansas City. Okay. And this is what becomes the NAIA tournament. And it's open to everybody. They, they don't only invite small schools, mm-hmm. um, but for the most part, the larger schools aren't interested. And so it becomes rapidly thought of as the small college national championship. Okay. And they're very, very proud of their sort of democratic impulses. Right. Um, and they often, in press releases, will describe, you know, they'll, they'll say the NIT, which isn't open, and then the very next year the NCAA comes in, which is also only at first only open to NCAA members. And they're like, you know, you have, a, you have a closed championship and you have an open championship. Which one's the legitimate, you know, champion? Right, right. So then how long do those two tournaments vie for teams and exclusivity and, and uh, television's not coming along yet, but radio and broadcasting and so forth uh, are, are part of the bidding process to, to advertise and to, to uh, talk about these games and these tournaments? Well, for the most part, the, the NAIA tournament, which was actually called NAIB at the time, it's, it was solely focused on basketball. So it was the okay. National Association for Intercollegiate Basketball. Mm-hmm. Because they never really competed for the same teams, they, for the most part, were not really a competitor with the NCAA tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, the NCAA saw their real competitor as the NAI, I mean, as the, the NIT, because those were 
inviting teams that were um, some of them were members of the NCAA, mm-hmm. but were also prominent. And at uh, early on, as it is now again, but for a while it didn't. But early on, they were offered our, um, at the same time, so you couldn't go to both. Okay. So you had to choose which tournament you were going to belong to. And the NIT, because it was basically driven by commercialism from the get-go, gave teams uh, a cut of the gate, right, straight up front. Um, so you could participate in the NCAA tournament and maybe not have anything paid for or go to the NIT, get your hotel comp for the week, and the boys all get a, a weekend in New York City, and yeah. they're going to cut you a check on the way out of town. Who yeah. doesn't like that, basically? Right. Right. So the NIT was really the, the dominant tournament for the first few years. Um, and that begins to change in the 40s. Uh, okay. The first thing is is that during World War II, both sides agreed uh, under the auspices of the Red Cross. The champions of the two tournament would play each other as a fundraiser for the Red Cross during World War II. Okay. And the NCAA team won three years in a row during World War II. Okay. Um, so this, in the public's mind, gave this a sense that the NCAA champion was at least as good as the NIT champion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the NCAA was also able to, you know, through legislation, basically say that if you were a member of a conference that was in the NCAA and you didn't participate in the NCAA tournament if you were invited, then you, you know, sometimes bore repercussions. You might not be invited next year. Um, you know, you could maybe be uh, excluded from a cut of, of tournament proceeds. So they, that some of these leverages were, were more effective than others. But that was the way in which the two tournaments uh, sort of started to vie with one another. Um, and then also the NIA, or sorry, the NIT changed their schedule by a week. And so then it became conceivable to play in both. Okay. Um, and that was, you know, a lot of times, you know, you think about something as, as important as a, an end of season championship basketball tournament. And you go back and you realize that a lot of times when these tournaments were offered was simply because when the building was available. Yeah. Um, so, you know, <laughs> contracts for when Madison Square Garden was available was really what shaped this. It wasn't when the NIT wanted to. It was just that was the weekend that was available. So they yeah. changed, you know, the, the weekend of the NIT for that reason. Yeah. Um, well, in, in all of this, uh, how does, uh, with the commercialism and so forth in the, these different tournaments, how does the NCAA then become ultimately the, the king of all the tournaments and, and the league in which all the teams want to be a part of? So uh, when, or at the top of the hour, I mentioned um, how he had all these different constituencies, mm-hmm. and they all wanted something a little different out of college sports. Yeah. And probably the most vigorous, uh, vociferous group of this were the liberal arts colleges. And their primary concern wasn't against competitive sports. It was competitive sports for the sole function of making money. Um, The private liberal arts colleges embraced a sort of a Greek tradition that a sound mind resided in a sound body. And so they thought that competitive athletics was highly important. In fact, so important that it should be funded just like, you know, Greek and Latin and physics. In other words, it should Mm -hmm. come out of the regular university budget. And we can't then, if it's that important, um, we, you know, we can't leave it to the vagaries of whether the team's any good or not this year and we sold a bunch of season tickets. So they don't want to see a commercialized model that is highly dependent upon media, you know, publicity and, and how wins. many people show up and that's all pegged to winning, right? Yeah. And then if, the, if what really matters is winning, then that gets us down the slippery slope. But, well, this kid's test scores aren't quite as good, but, boy, he sure hits from outside really yeah. well. Let's find <laughs> him a spot in the student body, right? right. Or, 
or, you know, coaches who maybe have some real ethical issues, but, you know, they're really good at coaching. So those are the things that the liberal arts colleges really disdained. And, and so we can often kind of dis dismiss them as, you know, the, the pointy-headed intellectuals who want sport for sport's sake. And it's not entirely wrong, uh, but it was also more ideologically complex than that. So they want to see the NCAA impose real rigid eligibility standards. They want to see – they're not even interested in tournaments. For the most part, the private liberal arts colleges say, you know, a championship tournament – that's the kind of thing that is going to drive us towards this, you know, sort of functional rationalization where we're going to go get better players and better coaches because we want to win the whole thing. And yeah. so they're seeking to avoid those enticements. So they're really seeking to use the NCAA as a way to, quote unquote, reform college athletics, which really means only created in their image. Yeah. They know they don't have the juice to really overwhelm, you know, the Ohio States and the LSUs of, of, of the world. So they've got to go look for allies. And the first thing they try to do is ally themselves with these smaller state schools who also aren't playing on the level of the big boys, but they aren't fitting the same kind of institutional profiles as Oberlin and Swarthmore. You know, those are private liberal arts colleges with big endowments whose academic um, sort of reputation is where most people think of them. Yep. Smaller state schools, you know, they realize they don't have the academic pedigrees of some of those, but they also don't have the athletic pedigrees of their big school state brethren. So they just want to find a level playing field. They don't have any problems playing for smaller stakes as long as they're playing for stakes. So the alignment between the smaller liberal arts colleges and the smaller state schools is never very deep. And both sides kind of misread how deep this alliance really is. Um, and, and so the NCAA has got to figure out, okay, we've, we've now got forces aligned against us and they have a voting majority. Mm -hmm. How do we combat this? Um, and so the answer is they're going to create a separate tournament to try to buy off some of their critics. Um, and they originally called it the college division tournament. It's what eventually becomes division two. Okay. It's, it's, it's medium time athletics as one scholar has called them. Yeah. Um, and so many of the state schools are basically thrilled. Now they've got their own venue that they get to play for, you know, for all the marbles, at least as, as they're you know, kind of profile allows for it. Um, and, and so this, you know, buys off a lot of the hostility uh, within the association. The other thing is the NCAA agrees to expand their committee structure to allow for some of these smaller state schools to get on these committees. Because as I mentioned at the top, the committees is where all of the power of the NCAA really resides. Yeah. And most of these small schools had no membership on these committees at all. And I, I found one instance where a, a, a faculty member from a big-time school had to resign because his status changed in the university. And he was sitting on seven NCAA committees. <laughs> so, I mean, these big-time schools really dominated the institutional yeah. bureaucracy. And so giving these committee assignments, you know, some of these smaller schools was a way to buy off and release some of the pressure. Um, and and the, the private liberal arts colleges really sort of get left then, you know, bit embittered uh, because they don't really get anything. Yeah. So how, it, it's almost inconceivable to understand or to imagine that, say, Smarth, Swarthmore, their, their overall um, ideal would be a coach who also teaches math. Who had a tenure-track job. Who had a tenure-track job, 
Uh, all the ro revenue from the gates and so forth just goes into the general fund of the university, is not held out as a part of that, and that everybody plays sports like you would in intramural leagues. Um, it, it seems like that, that's what they were shooting for back in the 20s, 30s, 40s. And when would you say they kind of gave up on that? Well, at one level, they don't. Um, okay. Many of those schools, Emory University, for example, still requires a swimming test to graduate. So does Georgetown. Really? Um, okay. So, and, and this this was not uncommon. Uh -huh. um, and so the, the essence of physical fitness yeah. was always perceived to be integral. Um, many of these uh, campuses housed multiple teams, in fact, mm -hmm. um, that were competitive because, again, it wasn't they were against competition. In right. fact, they believed um, in competition as necessary in a, you know, a capitalist post-industrial environment. It wasn't that they wanted everybody to get a trophy. Far from it. They wanted to create environments where yeah. excellence was developed and rewarded yeah. because in their mind, that was one of the things that was the benefit of a liberal arts education was this development of broad skills mm -hmm. um, and competitivism was one of them. Mm -hmm. um, so those, you know, they, they still wanted that. Um, and they just, you know, um, their, their moment of choice really was they could throw in with the what became the NAIA that mm -hmm. was devoted to smaller schools. Um, it wasn't, you know, the pure, you know, non-commercialized version that they would have preferred, but it certainly wasn't the NCAA and thrall to the big time schools or sort of stays quiet and know you're going to get run over, but still belong to the NCAA. Yeah. And they choose institutional prestige and remaining within the voice of, of the NCAA. Um, they, I don't know if reward is really the right way to word it, but they yeah. eventually do get in 1972 what we now think of as Division Three, And that's oh, okay. basically everything they were calling for in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. No scholarships for athletics, no special preferences. They don't charge for admission, mm -hmm. um, and and so that that was uh, the the model that they wanted to see, and unable to win over the big time schools to create you know this is how all of college athletics is going to be. They just got their own fiefdom basically. Okay, well, Kurt, I was wondering if you could describe some of your sources. Where do you where do you dig up all this stuff in different university archives, or how does that pan out? Newspapers, I imagine, are a big source and. I, I did look at newspapers, uh, but mostly what the book is looking at is sort of the power dynamics in the institutions, right. um, how these groups and the people who worked in them operated. Um, and as academic institutions, most of those participants were going to be housed in universities. And so I found them at university archives. I was quite fortunate that I was able to get some material out of the NCAA archives. Um, the NCAA is not really set up to be a public repository. And the way the NCAA is structured from a bureaucracy standpoint, the work that is done by the member institutions, any, any correspondence of business is then the responsibility of that uh, faculty member or staff member. So it is not housed at the NCAA. So at one point, for example, I was trying to track down a committee and I was dealing with 14 different schools trying to find out who on the committee might have left correspondence. Um, so that could have that was could be sort of mind numbing sometimes. Yes. But what the NCAA did have is meeting minutes from all of their committee activities. So that was extremely valuable. And down in Kansas City, um, the NAIA also does not maintain a public archive. 
um, but allowed me incredibly graciously <laughs> the run of the building to just literally just start going through boxes and filing cabinets and, oh, wow. and find out what I might run into. Uh, but by far and away, the vast majority of it was at university archives, um, and you hope to find figures who were deeply involved and also, um, you know, sort of paper savers who probably had better than average, you know, secretaries. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, at Oberlin, um, there was a, a big voice for the liberal arts sort of faction was a guy named J.H. Nichols. He was the athletic director at Oberlin for 30-odd okay. years. Um, and on a bunch of NCAA committees, and he had a trove of of material. Um, and then Fog Allen at Kansas, the Special yeah. Collections Spencer Research Library at KU is a wonderful place. Yes, it is. Um, and they've got uh, all of, not only was Fog Allen the basketball coach, he was also the athletic director. So he has two separate paper collections, uh, one of which result, revolves around simply the operations of basketball, but another are around the athletic department and then his involvement away from the University of Kansas just in the world of basketball. He was both in, uh, you know, an innovator. Um, he wrote copiously. He was also involved for a time with the Olympics. So he's got a bunch of stuff down at KU, and, and that was also extremely valuable. Okay. And then there were a handful of other places that, you know, the Internet and, and a well-placed phone call and email was able to, you know, I'd, I'd maybe get a folder Xeroxed. and, and Scare something up. Yeah, yeah. so it was, yeah. But it was fun tracking it all down. Yeah. Well, very good. Just one last question. You know, the recent SCOTUS decision is going to change athletics, college athletics, for a lot. They can take some type of compensation. Or Have you uh, read the case, and are you familiar with how that might I have, um, and as with many Supreme Court decisions, it, it is always probably slightly less definitive than, than we'd like to, to, uh, to believe. I should preface this by saying I've never gone to law school, so I'm really yeah. no more informed on this than anyone else who reads the New York Times or the Washington Post. But yeah. um, certainly the current makeup of the court um, appears to be more than highly skeptical of, of the NCAA's model where they are able to control the status of um, the athletics and particularly the issue of compensation. The, the, the decision that was issued recently is fairly limited. It got a lot of, um, a lot of media discussion about uh, part of the opinion from Justice Kavanaugh, which was not cited by in the, in the majority opinion, but suggested that basically the NCAA is in violation of antitrust and really they're, they're on borrowed time. Um, you know, how influential Kavanaugh's writings will be moving forward, you know, we really don't know. Um, I would say that if we predict the demise of the NCAA, I, I'm skeptical to go that far. Less of a demise, more of a shift. Yeah. I mean, one yeah. of the things about the book, actually, that I want to assert is the NCAA has found itself up against the ropes on more than one occasion, and they have not only always managed to escape but emerge in a way that they come off almost better than where they started. Mm. Um, I, I think this is, to be sure, a, a still a very, you know, this is a different situation. But to be sure, one of the things the NCAA enjoys is an advantage that they own what we call intellectual property. Uh, the, the NCAA basketball tournament is a wholly owned property of mm -hmm. the NCAA, yeah. and it makes a ton of money. Yeah. And one of the things we look at is, well, why do we need the NCAA? Why don't we just break away and, and host our own tournament? And, and they could do that. The problem with that is the profitability of the NCAA tournament is driven in large measure by our cultural public perception of its democratic openness. You know, everybody loves the fact that some of these schools who they've never even heard of before mm -hmm. suddenly get their shot 
um, at Duke or Kentucky or, you know, UCLA or whoever. And that is what drives a lot of the interest in the NCAA tournament is the perception of openness. And if you look at the TV ratings of the first weekend compared to the last weekend, those are different. And so a lot of the value of the intellectual property of the NCAA is the fa- of the of the basketball tournament is that it's open to everybody. So creating a tournament that's simply just for the best 40 or 50 blue blood tournaments would be probably highly competitive basketball but is not going to enjoy the same kinds of profitability okay. as the current NCAA tournament. Football is a little different because the NCAA really doesn't run college football. You know, the playoff is not owned by the NCAA. Yeah. Um, so if I had to guess, one of the things that may happen is the NCAA will openly and you know sort of admit that they don't control football and that will be governed entirely outside of the bounds of the NCAA. Um, the other issue that I think is going to come up is if we start talking about compensating players um, and then how the university will continue um, to participate or you know to pursue this model that they've insisted for years, um, you know, has to be a commercialized venture because while football and basketball at some schools, women's basketball at a handful of schools, softball and um, baseball and maybe at the University of Iowa wrestling, mm-hmm. um, you know, really gets a, a lot of, of, of commercialized interest. Most of them don't. Um, we criticize fairly, I think, both the NFL and the NBA for allowing the NCAA to be an uncompensated developmental league for those leagues. Yeah. You know, these are basically the minor leagues, and those pro leagues don't have to provide anything to help them. Mm-hmm. We never make the connection, although I think the model is just as applicable, that the exact same arrangement exists between the universities and the U.S. Olympic Committee. You know, things like the Olympic water polo team, the women's volleyball team. Those are entirely developed at the collegiate level. There mm-hmm. is no viable alternative to developing international elite competition outside of university sports. Um, if, if we start paying the players what they're fairly deservedly owned, and, I, and I'm a, mm-hmm. a firm believer that, that college athletics, you know, everybody's making money but the players who are actually the ones earning the money. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you know, if we start di- directing that towards the enterprises that make the most – then what we're probably going to witness is a scenario like Division Three sports, where those sports that don't gain a lot of commercialized revenue are going to, um, you know, be much, much farther down the food chain in terms of the quality of the coaching they get, the intensity, the competition, all the travel perks, and, you know, kind of the swag that teenagers and post-adolescents yeah. really enjoy. And then I'll be curious to see what happens then in international competition um, and, and who's going to pony up the, the money to eventually continue to develop those. So I, those are all things that I don't pretend to have answers to, but I think those are the, the signposts on the road up ahead that okay. somebody who's reading the tea leaves is going to have to answer. Um, and I, I don't think that it's just going to simply go away. We're not going to be left with the, you know, the top 16 or 32 biggest universities mostly driven by football running the whole thing. Because there's too many other stakeholders, I think, that will lose out, and and I don't think that that's going to be permissible. Even the Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Kurt, um, thanks very much for coming on the show. It's been a fascinating conversation, and it was a great book to read and understand uh, how things happened before March Madness and how the NCAA fought off and became kind of the big kahuna in college basketball. Thanks a lot. Thank you. It was fun to talk about it. I appreciate it. So thanks to our sponsor, the South Dakota Historical Society Foundation. 
and our partner, the South Dakota Public Broadcasting. But most importantly, thanks to you, the listener of this show. As always, if you like the show, please share it with friends and help us get the word out. The South Dakota Historical Society can be found on the web at history.sd.gov, and we'd appreciate you checking us out. Now go do some history. <laughs>